Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back. We hope you guys are having a wonderful week. Courtney and I are a little tired today, but it's fine. We're here, and we're doing it, and we're getting out this much-awaited episode for you guys. Yeah, so um, we got up early so that we could work out before we record since this episode's probably going to be a bit longer. Um, But we also stayed up super late because this research was so time consuming. And since this is going to be released a few weeks later and I won't be home alone at that point, don't research Bundy when you're home alone and then go to sleep. Nope. You get some nightmares. You hear some noises. I just, I don't recommend it. (laughs) Yes, I had some very unusual nightmares. Um that I'll tell you about more specifically later, but they're very entertaining. But, um, (laughs) yeah, so we finished at, like, midnight, I think, and then we got up at 7 this morning so that we could work out before we record. Um, I shocked everyone because I was like, yeah, I'll get up, like, 7, 7.30. And the night before, I was like, I'm getting up at 7. I'm doing it. And my, I set, like, four alarms, like, 6, (laughs) 6 6.15, (laughs) 6.30, 6.45. And I got up and I texted them and they were like, oh, we're not out of bed yet. We thought you wouldn't be up until like after 730. <laughs> yes. Like I set my alarm for 715 and Tiffany set hers for 730 because we're like, okay, we're just thinking realistically here. Like if Courtney <laughs> says 7 to 730, it's like 730 to 745. So we'll be good. <laughs> but I was very impressed. Courtney was up and ready to go. So I was and... I was on top of it. I'm not a morning person. I'm no. more of a night owl. I'm more of a night person. I don't like mornings, but I did it. And now I've worked out. I'm going to record and then get on with my day because it's a busy one, apparently. <laughs> See, so isn't it fun when you get up early and you can get all these things done before noon? It's wonderful. I mean, yeah, but I can also do them at like 11 p.m. too. <laughs> Yeah, no. See, I am not a night owl. I like to be in bed at like 9.30. So when Courtney and I are FaceTiming at midnight last night, finishing the 30-page research for this episode, I was done. Like, my phone rang and Andrew's like, who the hell's calling you at 10 o'clock at night? So yeah, it was. we're we're ready to get these knocked out. Okay, and so yeah, we're going to hop into it. I do have a correction from our uh, Colleen Slimmers episode. Um, So there was a name that we weren't too sure about how to pronounce and pretty sure we probably butchered it as well. (laughs) Um, Yep. Her name was pronounced Kim Iloilo and it's a Filipino name. So I'm very sorry, Kim, if you somehow listened to that and we got it wrong, but now we corrected it. Yes, and thank you to our listener, Sierra, who sent us that um, pronunciation. We do really appreciate it because sometimes it's so hard if you can't find it online. It's like, well, I'm just doing the best I can, and sometimes that's not great. So thank you for letting us know. We really appreciate that. Yeah, and we've seen a lot, too, like cities and states and different people pronounce it different ways. Like, I live in Tennessee where we pronounce things like the way you would not expect people to pronounce, like... (laughs) Maryville, but if you read it, it's like Maryville, but it's like, no, we don't pronounce it like that. So it gets complicated too, especially when people have their own different little takes on it. Yes. So with that, as you can see from the episode title, and as we already mentioned, we are finally doing Ted Bundy today. So our sources for this episode, um, heavily The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule, The Phantom Prince by... 
Elizabeth Kendall. We also got some information from Biography.com, Mayo Clinic, All That's Interesting, a Women's Health magazine, and an L article. So a couple of other little tidbits about some more recent things that have come out um, since those books. I would also like to give a huge shout out to Wikipedia because yes. it had it in chronological order, which we've mentioned before, and Roll is not big on chronological order of things, um, but it did have it and it would tell me what page number in Anne Roll's book it was from. So it was very helpful. Want to give a shout out to that. Remember, Wikipedia can be used, but use the sources it uses. There you go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> use it as a part of your overall research, not as the research. Exactly. With that said, I don't think we need much of an introduction about what Ted Bundy did, because everyone knows that. So we're just going to start at the beginning of who the hell Ted Bundy was. So Theodore Robert Bundy was born on November 24th, 1946 in Burlington, Vermont, in a home for unwed mothers. Um, he was there for two months after he was born. His mother was Eleanor Louise Cowell, but she went by Louise, and his father was unknown. And Louise almost put Ted up for adoption, but her father, Simon, wanted the baby to join the family, um, and they were living in Philadelphia at the time. So Ted Bundy started life as Theodore Cowell, and he thought that Louise was his sister and not his mother. So he was raised to believe that his grandparents were actually his parents. So the Cowells were a relatively normal family, but it was said that his grandmother had depression and agoraphobia, um, which if you're not familiar with agoraphobia, it's an anxiety disorder where you just um, really struggle with places and situations that might cause you to feel panic and trapped and helpless or embarrassed. So really a lot of like social anxiety um, and it leads to a lot of panic attacks as well. And his grandfather also had a very strong temper. So everyone was the victim of his violent temper, including animals, employees, and family members. There's some speculation that Louise had gotten pregnant after being raped by her father, Simon, but she says that she was seduced and abandoned by a war veteran and that that's who Ted's father was. Um, so it is very possible that Ted experienced physical or psychological abuse from his grandfather. However, Ted maintains that they had a good relationship. And Ted did show some strange behavior from the beginning. So his aunt recalls a time when she was sleeping and she woke up to find Ted as a toddler placing knives around her, which, you know, toddlers do some interesting things. That's not usually one of them. I wonder, like, a little odd. where were these knives stored that he could just easily get a hold of them? <laughs> yeah, and, like, how many knives? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like, what's happening here? I mean, this is, like, multiple knives. It's not just, oh, I was able to get a hold of one. Like, anyway, so... When Ted was three, he and Louise left Philadelphia and moved to Tacoma, Washington. Um, so she didn't want to be too obvious about her son's illegitimacy, so she, she changed his name to Nelson when they moved. But Ted wasn't a big fan of the move, and he really missed Philadelphia. Um, and so he became even more upset when Louise got together with an Army hospital cook named Johnny Bundy. So he was not very happy about this. Um, but Louise and Johnny did marry in 1951. And Johnny adopted Ted, and so this is how Ted officially got the name that we would all know very well, Ted Bundy. My question is, too, is, like, he didn't know until later in life that, like, Louise was his mom, not his sister. But you didn't think it was weird that you moved across the country with your sister and didn't stay with your parents? <laughs> yeah, like, that might be kind of a, a red flag of, that's interesting, like, especially as a child. But I guess if you're a kid and that's all you know and you're just like, eh, I guess that sounds right. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's what people do. Who knows? So Johnny and Ted never had a great relationship and it was always very tense between them. So Ted hated that Johnny didn't make a lot of money and that he wasn't the smartest man. So Ted's just on his high horse very early in life as he will remain. Um, friends would also say that he would provoke Johnny um, who would then sometimes strike out at Ted in frustration. But Ted and his mother did have a mostly good relationship and she always made sure that he was physically cared for. She did go on to have four more children, so attention was divided in the home after that. So as Courtney mentioned, he would find out later in life that Louise was actually his mother and not his sister, and his illegitimacy was always such a sore spot for him. So according to one psychologist who interviewed Ted, he said that as a teenager, he found his birth certificate and found that the father's spot was marked as unknown. But in the book The Phantom Prince that was written by his long-term girlfriend Liz, she said that it was a cousin who teased him about it and showed him his birth certificate proving it. So not exactly sure when he found out, but he was a little bit older when he accidentally somehow found out that his mother was his mother and not his sister. So Ted wasn't always the smooth talker that we knew later on in life. So he didn't really fit in a lot as a kid and he was teased a lot because he had a speech impediment. Um, he didn't make the basketball or the baseball team in high school, which was really hard for him to deal with. And he was just generally a loner. He did really well in school academically, but he was never like the top of his class, just pretty well. Um, and of course we're focusing on the outliers of his childhood, but overall he did have a mostly normal childhood. He had a few good friends. He had some jobs mowing lawns, delivering newspapers. He went to church with his parents. Also, apparently one time he saved the life of a friend's niece who was drowning. Um, so some very normal things going on. Um, but Ted did begin stealing at a young age. Um, so he was a good skier and he would steal skiing equipment that he couldn't afford. And he would also forge lift tickets so that he could ride up there for free. Um, and as a teenager, he also attempted to steal a car. So his girlfriend Liz would talk a lot in her book about he, how he had a really big problem with stealing things and it would escalate as he got older. So Ted graduated from high school in 1965 and during that summer he worked at Tacoma City Light so that he could save money for college and attended the University of Puget Sound for the 1965-1966 school year. And the next summer he worked in a sawmill and transferred to the University of Washington where he began a program in intensive Chinese. Um, Ted felt that one day China would be a country that the U.S. would have to reckon with and it would be good to know the language. So when Ted moved on campus, he met Diane Edwards. Um, now if you have read Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, she refers to her as Stephanie in the book because she did change some names. Um, but her name is pretty well out there. It's not like she's trying to hide or anything. Um, but just if you've read the book and you're confused, that's why. Um, so he met her in the spring of 1967, and he said that she was just like the epitome of his dream girl. They didn't have a lot in common, but they did share a love of skiing, and Diane had a car, so he would often hitch a ride with her. And they started to spend more and more time together, and Ted eventually fell in love with her. So Diane was a year older, and she was the daughter of a wealthy family, and she was possibly the first woman to initiate physical lovemaking with Ted. Um, he had little to offer her and would work odd jobs to pay his way through college, but they did stay together for a year. So kind of an odd match here, but yeah. for that year, they seemed to get along really well. Um, and Diane loved him, but not quite as much as Ted loved her. 
And they had fun, but she was just more pragmatic. And she wanted to continue her life and find a husband who would fit in with her California life. And she just didn't really see Ted as being that person. Um, She found him very emotional and just kind of insecure and unsure of himself. He had trouble committing to a major. And then she also just kind of had a feeling that he used people and took advantage of them. Um, And that he was kind of a liar. So she's just kind of not quite sure about Ted at this point. Um, So Diane graduated in 1968. And so she's like, okay, this is a good way to kind of end this relationship because I'm going to move to San Francisco. But then Ted won a scholarship to a Chinese program in Stanford for the summer of 1968. So he's like, okay, well, we're still going to be together. It's fine. Diane's like, damn it. I know. She was like, this was my clean break. Yep. And then she's like, nope, never mind. Um, So Diane did make it clear that when he went back to school, then their relationship was over. So Ted returned to Seattle after that summer, and he decided that he was no longer interested in Chinese. So he started taking classes in urban planning and sociology, but then he soon dropped out of college. And during the fall of 1968, he became a driver and bodyguard for Art Fletcher, who was running for governor, but Fletcher would go on to lose that election. In early 1969, Ted decided to travel and wanted to go back to his roots and kind of find out more about where he came from. So he did go to Burlington to try to find out who his father actually was. Um, And so when he was at the home for unwed mothers, he did uncover the name Lloyd Marshall. Um, Lloyd was a graduate of Pennsylvania State University and an Air Force veteran, um, and he was a salesman, and he was born in 1916. So he would have been 30 when Ted was born. Um, So Ted really couldn't find any reason why he left or anything about that. That was kind of the extent of what information he was able to find about who they're pretty sure was his father. But again, if Louise was raped by her father and that's how Ted came to be, I mean, of course she would lie on the birth certificate. You know, there weren't paternity tests back then to confirm that this is who he says he is, so. Yeah, and I mean, if you put like Lloyd Marshall, I mean, that's not that uncommon of a name. Like you're not putting like John Smith, but also it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you could just put a fake name down or be like, I was, dating this guy for a time, you know, something like that. So after that, Ted went back to the West Coast and he hunted out Diane again, of course, Um, and even surprised her one time when she was leaving work, which like, don't do that if someone has broken up with you. That's not really okay. Yeah, she wasn't happy about it. She was like, I was not expecting to walk out of work and then Ted just be standing there. Yeah, no, It's, it's not romantic, guys. It's not. So then Ted went back to Seattle, um, and he would frequent the university district bars. And this is where he met Liz Klopfer, Kendall. She's got a couple of different last names. We're just going to call her Liz. (laughs) So Yeah. um, But again, if you have read The Stranger Beside Me, she is referenced as Meg in that book. Um, So Liz was newly divorced with a three-year-old named Molly. So Liz approached him at a bar one night because she said that he looked sad. So she just kind of was like, hey, you know, what's the matter with you? And so they talked for a little bit, and then he actually ended up going home with her that evening um, and spending the night with her and her daughter, and they quickly fell in love. So Ted re-enrolled at the University of Washington as a psychology major, and he did have his own apartment, but he would often stay at Liz's house with her and Molly, and they would go on to basically be a family unit for many years, um, all throughout Ted's murdering sprees. Um, He would still come home to Liz and Molly. So in 1971, Ted took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, which is where he met Anne Rule. Um, If you're not familiar with the story of Anne Rule writing the book, basically 
she was friends with Ted and she was writing this book before she knew that Ted was the murderer. So she actually like had a contract to write The Stranger Beside Me about these murders that were happening um, in Seattle, obviously before it had the name The Stranger Beside Me. Um, but she was writing the book about these murders, working alongside Ted, and then would later find out that it was Ted. So, And she was crazy. a retired police officer too. So yes. it wasn't like she was just, you know, no one with no experience. Like yeah. She had good experience in law enforcement. Like law enforcement agents, like mm-hmm. usually reached out to her. Like that's why it's just like so shocking because... Even in her book, she was like, I turned him in, but I didn't think it was him. Like, there's yeah. no way. Like, what? what? Yeah. Like. <laughs> it's crazy. So, in 1972, Ted finally graduated from the University of Washington, and he joined Governor Daniel Evans' re-election campaign. And after Evans was re-elected, he was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, who was the chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. And in early 1972... As 1972 doctors apparently did, um, Liz's doctor recommended that she give her body a break from her birth control, which is not a thing that we do anymore. Um, But I guess back then they're like, oh, well, you shouldn't be taking this so long. Why don't you take a break? I guess they didn't know like long term effects because when was birth birth control pills invented around then when I think. Yeah, I think it was like the 60s when they first came out. So, yeah, they were probably like, like, we don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Just take a little break. Yeah, just (laughs) give your body some some reset. Turn it off and back on. It's fine. (laughs) Um, So her and Ted decided to just be careful while they were having sex, but Liz did soon become pregnant, um, and both of them knew that a baby was just not in the cards for them at the moment. You know, he's trying to go to law school, and she's working and already has a child, um, so they did terminate the pregnancy. And in early 1973, Ted was finally accepted to the University of Utah Law School, um, but it wasn't his first choice. And so he felt so confident that he would get other acceptance letters that he denied their offer. Um, Then he got rejection letters from all of his other schools except for the University of Puget Sound. So then Ted just continues to be a shitbag like he does. And on a business (laughs) trip in the summer of 1973, he reunited with Diane again. Um, And she was just amazed at his transformation and his commitment to a serious job and a future. So they started dating again, even though he's still dating Liz. Um, And Diane even flew up to Seattle occasionally to stay with him when he was at his own apartment and not at Liz's. And Ted even introduced Diane to Davis as his fiance. And then in January of 1974, he just abruptly broke things off with Diane. He stopped returning her calls and just didn't write her back. And so after a month, when she finally got a hold of Ted, she was like, why did you, you know, end things that way? And he's like, Diane, I have no idea what you mean. And so she never heard from him again. And she married someone else during Christmas of 1974. So Diane really believes that Ted did this deliberately. He like, you know, because she was basically like, you're not good enough for me. You're not serious enough. Like, I don't see a future with us. So Ted went and just got his life together just enough to go back and get her back. And then he could be the one to leave her this time. So she really feels like it was intentional revenge on Ted's part. And we'll see Ted is very big about control, too. So he probably wanted to just have his little fun being controlling. Yes. So when exactly Ted committed his first murder isn't really known. Um, He has said, he has never said officially, like, what the first murder was, who was the first murder. Um, He has hinted to murdering, like, in 1969 um, and 1972 and 73, which is kind of before, like, the big string of murders that we know for sure was him started. Uh-huh. Um, there is speculation 
of him killing in 1961 of a girl in his neighborhood named Anne-Marie Burr. So she was eight years old and she lived down the street from Ted. Um, she disappeared from her home on August 31st, 1961. Ted would have been 14 at this time and he was kind of known as a peeping Tom. So it's like everyone kind of knew like he just kind of peeped in people's windows basically yeah. um which we also know is a lot of times like how serial rapist or serial murder start yes. is by being peeping toms um so they speculate he could have been peeping and seen an opportunity um there were very few clues at the burr home but some that were there there was an open window a footprint and an unlocked front door so Anne marie's parents were in the house when she was taken um Anne-Marie's mother thought it was likely that she knew her abductor, and it is possible that Ted could have met Anne-Marie because she did have a paper route in that neighborhood, um, and they just lived in the same neighborhood, so they might have just been kind of familiar with each other. Yeah. Ted has always denied this murder, um, even when right before his execution, her Anne-Marie's mother was like, please just tell me. Mm-hmm. He still said, no, it wasn't me. Um, and... Some people believe it could have been him, and he just denied it because he was living with his family then, and mm-hmm. he didn't want to be like, let them know of that. Um, in 2011, there was not enough DNA to compare to Ted's. So, I don't know about this one. I do find it odd if he did and didn't murder again until, like, 1974. That's a pretty long break, mm-hmm. um, especially when we see kind of what starts happening. But who knows with Ted? Who knows if they were just murders all along this time and we didn't know yeah and it is also strange that he would admit later to so many others but just still like adamantly deny this one um yeah but we'll get into it in part two spoiler if you weren't aware that this was a two-parter um we'll get into it into part two with his confessions that he was more hesitant to talk about the child victims so that might have something to do with it too because if he did murder her she would have been the youngest that we're aware of and so that might have played a role in why he's like you know, I'll admit to these others, but, like, this one is too much. I can't even admit to that myself. So, yeah. And especially because, you know, he was with his mom and he was like, I don't want her to know that, like, while I was living in her house, like, yeah. I was killing, you know. Serial killers have these weird morals. Yes. You know, where, like, BTK, who's like, well, I didn't rape him. It's like, okay, but you still murdered him. Yeah. <laughs> You're not making yourself look better here. Yeah. So, on January 4th, 1974... Um, Karen Sparks' roommates became concerned when she hadn't come up for breakfast and she hadn't come out later that afternoon either. So they decided to go down and check on her and they found her unconscious with her face and hair covered in blood. She'd been beaten with a metal rod from her bed frame, had been um, sexually assaulted uh, with either the same rod or a metal speculum that had caused damage to her internal organs. Karen did survive, but she had no memory from the assault. Um, And she was left with brain damage that would stay with her for the rest of her life. So with this, detectives really didn't have any leads or any suspects. It seemed very random, very... Mm -hmm. They had no idea who would have done it. Um, And Karen was very lucky to have lived. So Linda Ann Healy was a 21-year-old undergraduate student who had a morning broadcast on weather reports for skiers. Um, So she was majoring in psychology, and she lived in a house with four other students, All her roommates were very cautious. They'd heard about the attack on Karen, and they were very um, careful and trying to take precautions to secure their house, make sure no doors were unlocked. Um, 
Linda's job did require her to be up very early. Um, I think she had to wake up around like 5.30 every morning. Um, so she didn't really stay out late that often. On January 31st at around 8.30, Linda went to the grocery store and came back. Um, her and her few friends went to Dante's, which was a popular tavern with university students. And they came back shortly after. So Linda then spoke to a former boyfriend on the phone. And then her and her roommates watched autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman before she went down to the basement room. So, and she was wearing blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots. And one of her roommates said at about a quarter to one, she did see Linda's light was out. So at 5.30 the next morning, her roommate heard her alarm going off and just went back to sleep. So at six, her own alarm went off and she was surprised to hear that Linda's alarm was still going off. So, and then the phone rang and it was Linda's job wondering why she was not at work. So the roommate went into her bedroom and noticed her room was immaculate and the bed was made. Nothing looked off. She found that it was a bit off that Linda wasn't there and that she wasn't at work, um, but she just turned her alarm off and assumed, okay, she's probably just running late. She's on her way to work. Um, however, Linda was not on her way to work, unfortunately, and she had disappeared just without a trace. So her roommates did notice that the side door was unlocked and they never left that unlocked. Um, the door was actually like almost impossible to lock from the outside, so it was always locked from the inside. Um, her parents showed up later for a dinner and Linda wasn't there either. So they were like, okay, Linda would never miss work, but she especially would not miss a dinner with her parents. So that's when they decided to contact the police and report her as a missing person. So detectives came to the house and when they pulled Linda's sheet back on her bed, um, they saw that the pillow was missing its case and it was stained with dried blood and some had leaked through to the mattress. So there was a lot of blood and they believed whoever's blood it was had sustained a serious injury, but it was probably not enough blood to have killed them. So her roommates pointed out that her bed was made a little differently than Linda usually did. And she also had a pink satin pillowcase that was missing. Her nightgown was in the closet and also had blood on it. So the roommates looked through her closet and noticed the only other thing missing was the jeans, blouse, and boots that she'd worn the night before. So, and her backpack was also missing. So since her nightgown had blood on it, investigators figured she was probably wearing it when she was attacked. And then the attacker took the time to dress her in what she had been wearing earlier before taking her, which is weird. And then hang the bloody nightgown back up. Also weird. Yeah. So the roommate said the only thing that was weird that day after she had vanished was they got three phone calls and when they answered all they could hear was just breathing and then the caller hung up after this all the roommates moved out of the house which completely understand i probably would too. yeah <laughs> be like goodbye <laughs> the neighborhood was searched thoroughly but there was no sign of linda um, linda's current and former boyfriend both took a lie detector test they were both cleared um 911 did receive a call on February 4th, and a man said, listen and listen carefully. The person who attacked the girl on the night of the 8th of last month and the person who took Linda Healy away are one and the same. He was outside both houses. He was seen. And so they were like, who's calling? Who are you? <laughs> he said, yeah. I mean, the natural next question, like, who is yeah. this? Um, and he responded, no way are you getting my name and hung up. Weeks passed. And there was no new leads. 
On March 12, 1974, 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson left her dorm room for a jazz concert, but she never arrived to that concert. She was a student in Evergreen State College, and that's just southwest of Olympia. She was highly intelligent and played the flute. She had left her apartment around 7 p.m. alone to walk to the concert, but no one had seen her at the concert, and she wasn't reported missing until six days later. So they said she was a free spirit, and it wasn't really uncommon for her to just take off at a moment's notice or maybe just, you know, hitchhike somewhere. Um, so her roommates weren't really concerned at first until it was a while and she hadn't shown up. And at this point, even when she was reported missing, it was only as a please attempt to contact. And then several more days passed and there was still no word from Donna. Which is so interesting when you think about the time that these murders occurred that it would just be like, oh, well, I haven't seen her in like six days. I'm sure it's fine. Because I mean, no one has cell phones. No one was posting on social media. So it's like, if you were somebody who would just take off, I mean, it would make sense that it wouldn't seem like a big deal if that was something that you frequently did, you know? Yeah, and I think it's it's very interesting in this case, too. I noticed, like, the victims, they were either, like, like Linda, who they were like, she has never missed a day of work. She would never miss this. Mm-hmm. She was always this, this, this. And then, like, the others are like, well, she was a free spirit, so we just, she just kind of, you know, would do whatever. Like, if, if she heard there was a good time that was happening at State Across and someone invited her, like, she'd yeah. go, which that's fine. But, yeah, it's very crazy to think about the mm-hmm. time. So Donna's former boyfriends were interviewed and cleared. Um, She would occasionally hitchhike to Oregon to see some of her friends, but they said they hadn't seen her since February 10th. So, and Donna was very close with her parents, so they kind of figured something was off when multiple days passed and they hadn't heard Mm -hmm. from her. And the campus was searched, but there was no sign of Donna, and she had disappeared just like Linda with no clue or sign of what happened. Susan Elaine Rancourt was a freshman at Central Washington State College. She was one of six children, and in high school, she was a cheerleader and a homecoming queen. Um, The rest of her family had moved to Alaska, but she decided to stay behind in Washington to go to college. She was majoring in biology, maintaining a 4.0 GPA, and working full-time at a nursing home. So she's our definition of a boss bitch. (laughs) good for you. Yeah. So Susan was, like, afraid of the dark, which I get... I'm a night owl, but also, like, I don't want to go anywhere alone yeah. at night. Um, and so after it became dark, she really didn't go anywhere without her roommate, which is also just a good thing, you know, always safer in numbers. Um, however, on the night of April 17th, she ventured out on her own because she'd heard of an opening to be a dorm advisor. So this job would help cut cut her expenses, and she could meet new students and kind of, like, break out because she was a little shy mm-hmm. So she was like, this would be a great opportunity for me. At 8 p.m. that evening, she left and she put a load of laundry in the washroom at the college and she left for the meeting. So the meeting was over at 9. So she had planned to see a film after and then she was going to put the clothes in the dryer probably at around like 10 p.m. So probably run back real quick, put her clothes in the dryer, meet her friend, Mm -hmm. go to the movie. Um, But no one saw her after the meeting. So her friend waited for her. But she never showed up. And again, this is before cell phones. You couldn't just text and be like, hey, where are you? You're just like, guess they're not coming. (laughs) Um, So the friend did just go to the movie alone. 
Susan's clothes were never retrieved. Um, they stayed in the washer until another student who was wanting to use the washing machine had taken them out and just set them aside a day later. Detectives tried to retrace her steps and figure out the most likely path she would have taken that night. Um, they did find a dark spot that could have been likely where she could have been taken, but there was no trace of Susan and she would have been carrying like a lot of things. They said from the meeting, she probably have a lot of papers with her. Mm -hmm. And you know, if she was just like taken and like forcefully taken, there'd probably be something there that she had dropped. Um, Susan was also very in shape and strong and all her friends said she would have fought back if someone had tried to forcibly take her. Um, Susan was nearsighted and she didn't wear contacts or glasses that night so she could see far enough away to like navigate campus mm -hmm. but she'd have to be pretty close to her abductor to like see his like facial features or see him in general. Yeah. With all these missing women other women started to come forward on the campus with stories of like weird things that were happening. So one girl said on April 12th that a man had come up to her in a sling and asked her to help him carry some stuff to his car. So he had drove a Volkswagen bug and she noticed that the passenger seat of the car was missing. Huge red flag. Yes. Um, so she got really bad vibes from this and she put the books on the hood of the car and just like ran away. She was like, nope. Um, and another girl had a similar story that happened to her on the 17th where an injured man was asking for help. He said he was having trouble starting his car and he was like, hey, can you get in and try the ignition? But she didn't know him, she didn't want to get in his car, and so she made an excuse and she left. So Roberta Kathleen Parks, who went by Kathy, was attending Oregon State University, and she just really wasn't happy there. Um, she was feeling very homesick. She had just broken up with her boyfriend. Um, on May 4th, Kathy had had a fight with her father over the phone, and then on May 6th, she had found out he'd had a heart attack but was likely going to survive. So Kathy was feeling a little better, after this news that her father was likely going to be okay, and so she agreed to join some friends for an exercise class. And then shortly after 11, she left to meet some friends for coffee, but told her roommate, I'll probably be back within the hour. So Kathy never did make it to meet her friends for coffee. Um, and again, no one had really seen anything suspicious. No women really came forward talking about men coming up to them on this campus. Um, there was no reports of men in slings or with Volkswagen bugs and police searched her door like hard in her dorm and on campus, but there was no sign of her. And after a week, they were pretty sure she'd been abducted. Brenda Carol Ball was a 22 year old student at Highland Community College. On the night of May 31st into June 1st, Brenda went alone to the Flame Tavern. Brenda had planned to ask for a ride to meet up with her friends later. Um, and a few people who knew her said that they did see her at the flame and that she had asked some musician friends for a ride, but they were going in the opposite direction. And Brenda was last seen talking to a handsome brown haired man with his arm in a sling. Uh, Brenda was also a free spirit and it took her roommates 19 days before they were convinced something happened to her, which is a long time. That's a very long time. Like, again, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this in a world where we are so connected to everyone all the time. But even with that, I feel like 19 days is a really, really long time to be like, oh yeah, everything's fine, but I haven't seen or heard from her. Yeah, like not even a phone call. Yeah. Um, and so they had checked with her bank and that's when they became really alarmed because none of her money had been touched. Mm -hmm. um, her parents also hadn't heard from her either. 
getting a little weird. So, Georgian Hawkins was 18 years old. Um, she had also been a cheerleader and she was an honor student at her high school. She was a student at University of Washington and she was maintaining a straight A record. She was a member of the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority and lived in the sorority house. On the early evening hours of June 10th, Georgian and a sorority sister had gone to a party where they had one to two mixed drinks. Georgian was going to leave early because she had a Spanish exam to study for and she was very worried about it. She was scared she was going to get a bad grade and she wouldn't maintain her A record. She was going to stop by a fraternity house on the way back to say goodnight to her boyfriend. Georgian did make it to the Beta House a little before 1230 on June 11th where she visited with her boyfriend for about half an hour, borrowed some Spanish notes, and went to walk the 90 feet to the back door of the house where she lived. So once she left, one of the other betas yelled George out the window and talked to her for a moment about the Spanish exam and they were just kind of joking and saying like adios, you know, just as college students do. She started walking towards her residence and he watched her for about 30 feet. Two other males saw her walk the next 20 feet. So she only had about 40 feet to go in a pretty well lit alley before she would get to her house. I point this out because part of what makes Bundy like so terrifying is how it's like abducting women like in plain sight mm -hmm. and nobody sees anything. Yeah. Like she had 40 feet left to go. And like some of the other women were like kind of like during the day, you know, it's mm -hmm. like very, very odd. So one of her roommates was waiting to hear pebbles at the window. Georgian had lost her key and she used this as a signal for the roommates to open the door, but the pebbles never came. So after two hours passed, she's like, okay, now I'm worried. She called the beta house who said Georgian left around 1 a.m. So she awoke the house mother and told her Georgian didn't come home. They waited through the night to see if she appeared. And when she didn't, they called the Seattle police. Usually there's a waiting period before police start searching, but with Georgian, they immediately started since there was this pattern of college-aged women going missing about every month. Mm -hmm. Probably helps. She was pretty and white too. Yes. But there's also this pattern and they're like, okay, things are getting bad. Yeah. Like something definitely unusual is happening here. We don't have at this point, what, five or six college-aged women that are just running away. That's not really happening. Yeah. So... Detectives covered the entire 90-foot alley on hands and knees and found no evidence. So, Georgian also had vision issues and wasn't wearing her contacts. So, she would have been she would have seen well enough to navigate the alley, but not enough to see someone's features from far away. So, investigators also thought someone could have called her name because as I said before, one of the betas yelled George out the window. Mm -hmm. If somebody's waiting for her, they would have known her name, and once she got close enough, he he might have grabbed her. So, as news of her disappearance spread, a sorority girl came forward saying she had been walking that night um, in the alley around 12.30. She saw a young man on crutches with his leg in a cast, and he had a briefcase that he just kept dropping. So, she offered to help him, but said, hey, I gotta run inside this house real quick, um, then I'll come back out and help you. But she ended up being in the house a little longer than she anticipated, and he was gone when she came back. So... A male student also said he'd seen a tall, good-looking man on crutches with a briefcase, and a girl was helping him carry that case. But he also later saw her walking home, and after being shown a picture of Georgian, he confirmed it wasn't her. So all of these missing women had very similar characteristics. Um, each had long hair that was parted down the middle. They were Caucasian or fair-complexioned. Um, they were all attractive, but there was really no common link 
among the victims to give the detectives like an adequate lead. They just all look the same, but they don't know each other. So they did have reports in two cases of a man seen nearby in an arm and leg cast, which they believed was probably how the man could have lured women close to him. You know, oh, like, help me. I'm on crutches. My arm's in a sling. Please help me. Mm-hmm. Like, look all at that. me. I'm vulnerable. Like, I could never hurt you. Yeah. Like, I'm injured. What can I do? So, they were really, like, grasping at straws, just anything they could get a hold of. Um, And an astrologist gave notes saying he was only taking girls when the moon is moving through Taurus, Pisces, or Scorpio. Which apparently was very, like, odd, like, kind of peculiar. Mm -hmm. So, the astrologist really believed it was significant and gave a letter to the detective and told him, do not open this until July 15th. Yes. And so, July 14th, 1974, was a beautiful day in Washington. And on really pretty days like this, the locals loved to go to Lake Sammamish State Park to enjoy the sunshine, nature, and swimming. And Lake Sammamish was packed that day with about 40,000 people there. And Rainier Brewing was hosting its annual beer bust in the park, and there was also a Seattle Police Athletic Association picnic that day. So, tons of events going on, beautiful day, just, I mean, literally packed, which It's crazy to think about in the time of corona being somewhere with so many people (laughs) so close together. But So one girl reported arriving around 1130 in the morning and she saw a young man wearing a white t-shirt and blue jeans that came up to her. Um, Again, his arm was in a sling and he asked her if she could help him load his sailboat onto his car because he wasn't able to do it with his bad arm. Um, So she agreed and she walked over to his metallic brown VW bug, but she didn't see a sailboat. And he's like, oh, well, it's at my parents' house just up the hill. And so he motioned to the passenger side door. And so, of course, at this point, she's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to like, like, I would help you put the boat on here, but I'm not going to ride with you somewhere to do that. Um, So she's like, actually, like, I'm meeting my parents. I'm already late. Like, I need to go. So she left. And around 1230, she saw the same man talking to another pretty woman who was wheeling a bike. Um, But she didn't really think much of it until she heard the news the next day of what had happened. So Janice Ott was a probation caseworker at the King County Youth Service Center in Seattle. Um, Her husband, Jim, lived 1,400 miles away in Riverside, California, because he was completing a course in the design of prosthetic devices for the handicapped, which is just like super cool. Um, And the probation caseworker position was a long-awaited job for Janice, so she decided to stay in Seattle, which meant that they would be long-distance for a few months, even though they had only been married a year and a half at this point. Um, But she did plan to move down to California in September. So Janice rode her bike down to Lake Sammamish from her home a little after 12 that day, and she left a note for the girl she was living with saying that she would be back around 4. And she had just laid down to get some sun when a man approached her with his arm in a sling. So there were tons of people nearby. So many people remember hearing this conversation and they would recall how this man seemed to have like a slight accent, maybe British or Canadian. And he asked her to help him attach his sailboat to his car. Um, So Janice asked him to sit down and they would talk about it. She told him her name and he responded saying his name was Ted. He said his parents' house was in Issaquah and she said that's also where she lived. And so she agreed to help him and no one saw Janice alive again after this. Then Denise Naslin, who was 18, also went to Lake Sammamish this day. Um, However, she wasn't alone. She was accompanied by her boyfriend and another couple. Denise was studying to become a computer programmer and working part-time as a temporary office helper to to help pay her own way through night school. And this picnic was just a really good, like, vacation day for her from her busy schedule. Um, The day was going really well. She had had a slight fight with her boyfriend, but they were able to quickly resolve it. 
So the man with the sling on his arm was seen talking to many women asking for help with his sailboat, but a lot of them were like, no, and just hurried off because they were obviously uncomfortable with that. Um, So at around 4 p.m., Denise and her friends roasted some hot dogs, and then the men fell asleep. And around 4.30, Denise got up to go to the bathroom. So one of the last people to see Denise alive was someone who saw her leave the bathroom talking to another girl. And then back at the campsite, Denise's friends grew restless, wondering where she was and why she had been gone so long, because she did leave her purse, car keys, and her leather sandals on the blanket. So clearly she didn't, like, just leave and go home because she left all of her belongings there. Um, And it seemed very unlikely that, you know, she would, like, walk away and not mention that she was going swimming or something like that. Um, So they waited a long time, and the sun started going down. Um, But they didn't know that a man had approached her a little before 5 o'clock asking her for help putting his sailboat on his car. Um, Denise was the type of person who would help someone, particularly someone that she thought was handicapped. Um, So almost everyone else had left, and Denise's boyfriend is just baffled at this point. Um, They've been together nine months, and they loved each other, and it wasn't like her to just disappear like this. Um, So they did report her disappearance to a park ranger around 8.30 that night. So again, it's getting dark. It's too late to start searching then, um, but the next day would start one of the most extensive searches in King County history. Um, So Jim Ott, Janice's husband, kept calling her house because he'd been waiting for her call that night and was growing concerned when she didn't answer. Um, So he waited by the phone the whole next day as well. Um, But Jim wasn't aware that Janice had never made it back home from Lake Sammamish. So Jim had fallen asleep on the 15th, and then he woke up suddenly and saw that it was 10.45 p.m., and he thought he heard Janice saying, Jim, Jim, come help me. And then the next morning is when he learned that Janice was missing. Meanwhile, a detective opened the letter from the astrologist that was written before that weekend, and remember, um, Courtney mentioned it, that the astrologist said, don't open this until after the 15th, and what the letter said was, if the pattern continues, the next occurrence will occur on the weekend of July 13th through the 15th. And so that had come true twice, actually. Um, Now we mentioned before, during this time, Ted still has this long-term girlfriend and her daughter that he's living with, spending time with. So we're gonna rewind just a little bit to go over Liz's account of this day. Um, So on the morning of July 14th, Ted came over and asked her what her plans were. Um, So she planned to go to church and then probably the beach. She said she was probably gonna go to Carkeek Park. Um, So they had been fighting some, and so he ended up leaving, and he came over later that evening and said he wasn't feeling well. Um, So they went to dinner, but he did end up staying homesick on Monday, and so Liz took him some orange juice and a can of soup after she got off work. So when the news broke of two girls who had gone missing from Lake Sammamish um, on the 17th is when they found this out. Um, They said it was by a man with a sling named Ted, and he had a slight accent, So she kind of got concerned because the night that she met Ted in the bar, she thought that he had kind of a weird accent that he didn't really seem to have after that. Um, And he also dressed very similar to how this man was reported to have been dressed at the park. So she decided to call Ted and discuss what she had seen in the papers, and she brought up how a man had asked the girls to put a sailboat on his VW bug and that his name was Ted. Um, And she's like, I guess Ted's going to be, like, a pretty hot name for a while. And Ted responded jokingly, yeah, I guess it's a good thing the guy didn't ask help for help with a rubber raft because Liz had recently given him a rubber raft. So he's kind of like acknowledging like, oh, okay, well, glad it wasn't this thing that I have that you know I have. Which probably in the moment is like, yeah, okay. But also like hindsight's like, oh God, that's creepy. (laughs) You know, like in the moment it's like, okay, maybe that's kind of like a, a bad timed joke, but also like 
not damning at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Seattle Post-Intelligencer published a police sketch of the Ted suspect. Um, but Liz saw it and she didn't think it looked familiar, didn't look like anyone she had ever seen. Um, but then on July 22nd, Liz had coffee with someone at work and they were like, don't you think this looks like someone you know? Um, and it was a clip from another police sketch from the Seattle Times. Um, and her friend had underlined the name Ted and she was like, doesn't your Ted have a VW bug? And she was like, yeah, but it's not metallic. Everyone keeps saying it's metallic. But the drawing did kind of look like Ted. Um, so Liz went home and she pulled out all of her pictures of Ted and she saw the jawline, the laugh lines under the eyes, and the eyes themselves were pretty similar. Um, so Liz hurried to her friend Angie's house with the sketch and the pictures. So Liz is like, look at all these similarities. There's the sketch that kind of looks like him, the accent, the expensive looking clothes. And then she also told Angie about how one time she had found casts in Ted's desk drawers. So like um, plaster to like make arm and leg cast from. So she's like, okay, like things are all starting to like point to this may be my boyfriend. Like there's, there's too many coincidences here. So they decided that they were going to go to a phone booth at the supermarket and call into the tip line because Liz is like, I don't want to call from my home phone. I don't want them to know who I am. Like, I'm pretty sure it's not him because like, this is my boyfriend that I live with and that I led around my young child. Like, it's not him, but also like, this is just weighing heavy on my mind. So if I just anonymously report it, they'll check it out. They'll confirm it's not him and then I'll feel better. So Liz first asked Angie to call because she didn't want to be the one to do it. So Angie asked if the car was for sure metallic and they were like, yes, they said it's metallic. So it's like, okay, great. Well, it can't be him. Um, but then Angie remembered that she didn't ask about a watch because Liz was like, hey, ask about if he was wearing a watch on his right wrist because Ted always wore his watch on his right wrist. Um, so Liz ended up going back and calling and asking about the watch and they said there were no reports of a watch. So she's like, okay, I feel a little bit better that I don't think it's him. Um, but then on August 8th, Liz read in the paper about Georgia and Hawkins' disappearance. Um, and so the article detailed all the similarities between her disappearance and then the guy Ted from Lake Sammamish. So Liz called Angie and Angie's like, okay, look, like you have to call the police. Um, so Liz called again and she's like, I want to remain anonymous, but they really wanted her to come in and file a report because they had gotten lots of reports from girls turning in their boyfriends. Um, but she's like, nope, like I'm not going to do that. And so she didn't call again for a while. And around this time, Ann Rule also called in a tip about Ted Bundy. Um, so she worked with him and she didn't know if he had a VW bug, but she did recognize like the sketch and the name. And she's like, okay, like I'm gonna call it in just in case, be on the safe side. Um, a DES employee and the University of Washington professor all called in Ted's name as well after recognizing him from the sketches. So then in August of 1974, Ted received another acceptance letter from the University of Utah Law School. So he's like, finally, like, okay, this is what I've been waiting for. Um, so he moved to Salt Lake City while Liz stayed in Seattle. Then in Utah, a new string of homicides began. So two of them would remain undiscovered until Ted confessed to them shortly before his execution. And Anne Rule mentions in her book that she wasn't paying attention to the crime in, in Salt Lake City at the time, but if she had, she would have noticed the eerie similarity to the crimes that were committed in Seattle. And all of a sudden, all the crimes in Seattle did stop. And it had been three months since the last murder there. Then on September 6, 1974, Janice Ott, Denise Nasland, and a third and maybe fourth unidentified person's remains were found two miles east of Lake Sammamish. 
So then on October 18th, 1974, in Midvale, Utah, 17-year-old Melissa Smith, who was the daughter of Midvale's police chief, Lewis Smith, was preparing for a slumber party. So as the daughter of a police chief, she'd been warned over and over about the dangers in the world, you know, just always to be on the lookout, be super safe, aware of your surroundings. Um, so she had planned to leave for the slumber party, but then when she phoned her friend's house, there was no answer. So she was still at home when another friend called because she'd had a fight with her boyfriend. Um, so Melissa's like, okay, like I'll walk over um, to the pizza parlor where you work so we can talk for a little bit. Um, so she comforted her friend and stayed at the pizza place until a little after 10 p.m. And she planned to return home before leaving for the slumber party, but she never made it home from the pizza parlor that night and no one saw her after she left the parking lot. It would be nine days before her body was found. Um, and when it was found, it was battered and nude. She was beaten on the head, possibly with a crowbar. She also had depressed fractures on the left side and massive subdural hemorrhages. Her body was covered with bruises, um, which had occurred prior to her death. So just, she had been very brutally murdered. Um, someone had also strangled her with her own blue stocking and her hyoid bone was broken. She had also been raped and sodomized. Um, there was no evidence, there was barely any blood near her body, um, and because it had taken nine days to find her, the killer could really be anywhere. Like, they just had no clues to go off of at this point. Yeah. And on October 31st in Lehigh, Utah, 17-year-old Laura Amy was feeling a bit disappointed in how Halloween was going. She was hoping maybe for a better night, um, so she left the cafe she was at and went to walk to a nearby park. It was a little after midnight at this point. So Laura had recently dropped out of school and had moved in with friends in American Fork. She was working a few low-paying jobs, but she also kept in daily contact with her parents. Um, Laura disappeared on Halloween, but her parents didn't know for four days. Um, not until they called their friend's house and they're like, you know, where's Laura? And they're like, oh, we don't know. We haven't seen her either. And her friends hadn't said they hadn't seen her since Halloween. Her body was found on November 27th by hikers in the Wasatch Mountains, and her father identified her on Thanksgiving Day due to a few scars she had on her forearm. A lot of the conclusions on Laura's autopsy was similar to that of Melissa's. Um, she also had the depressed fractures on the left and back of her head. She had also been strangled. She had countless facial contusions, and her body had deep abrasions from being dragged. They thought the weapon was likely an iron crowbar or ply bar. Um, Laura had been sexually assaulted and the presence of semen was found in her vagina and her anus. Her blood showed no sign of drugs, but she did have an alcohol reading of a little over 0.1. Um, so it's a little bit over the legal limit, but it's not enough to prevent her from fighting back. At this point, Liz's friend Angie had come back to Utah, where they were both from. So Angie had heard the stories of the murdered girls and seen the pictures and the resemblance to the Washington disappearances and murders. Um, so she came back and she told Liz, I don't want to scare you, but it's happening in Utah now. So at this point, Liz is like, okay, I have to go to the police for real this time. I can't just call and ask about the bug and I can't just ask about the watch. So, once Liz talks to pol the police, they say Ted had been checked out before by the task force. Um, and Liz met with the detective and told him, you know, Ted's really bad about stealing and listen to all these similarities I have. Um, and the detective's like, okay, just because you steal stuff doesn't mean you're a murderer. Um, 
And so he asked about Ted's temper. Did he ever hit her? Was he ever just like violent? And I do feel really sorry for Liz about this because she had to, at this point and future times, over and over and over again, go into detail about her sex life with Ted. Like, every Mm -hmm. little thing they'd probably ever done or tried. Which is just not something I would want to do is have to talk to all these police officers and be like, yeah, this is, yeah, this is, I did this. Yeah. Yep. Like, right. Like, have you ever tried this? And did you ever have an inkling to do that? And just so invasive for her. Yeah. So the detective decided that Ted was just really not of enough of a match. And he was just kind of like brushing Liz off. Um, cause she was like, reach out to Salt Lake. And he was like, no, nah, it's fine. And then he eventually told Liz, I'm going to put Ted Bundy in my done-it-twice file and file him away. I bet he feels stupid now. (laughs) (laughs) So, on November 8th, 1974, 18-year-old Carol DeRanche was headed to Fashion Place Shopping Mall in Murray, Utah. So, she'd left home a little after 6.30 p.m. Uh, She'd just graduated from high school in the spring, and she'd taken a job with Mountain Bell Telephone Company. She was still living with her parents, and she frequently went shopping. And on this day, she went to look at our box. Uh, She ran into a few cousins. She made a purchase. And then she decided she'd go browse through the books at Walden's bookstore. When she looked up to see a handsome man standing there, Um, he was well-dressed. He had brown hair. He had a mustache. And he asked her if she'd parked near the Sears. She was like, yeah, I did. And then he asked for the license number, and she gave it to him. And he said another shopper had reported someone had been trying to break into her car using a wire coat hanger. And he asked her, you know, will you come with us so we can see if anything was stolen out of your car? So she was kind of surprised, like, how did this guy find me in this mm-hmm. big mall? Like, um, But she decided, you know, okay, like, he's probably a security guard, a police officer. I'm a little nervous, but this guy seems in control, so she goes out there. Um... She is getting a few little red flags, and she is like, can I please see your identification? And he just chuckled. So, Mm -hmm. Carol had been trained to trust police officers, so she kind of felt a little foolish for asking. You know, you're trained, you know, always trust them, don't question them, whatever. So, she's like, okay, yeah, I'm just being stupid. Sorry. Like... Also, if you think that, don't. Reverse that from your brain. (laughs) Yeah, true. I Yes, I agree with that. (laughs) Um... So they get to her car and she glances around. She's like, there's nothing missing. Um, And so he's like, okay, let's uh, go back to the mall. Um, We're going to talk to my partner. And so he glanced around and he was like, oh, well, I guess my partner went to the substation. So we have to go meet there and identify him. And Carol's like, I was inside shopping. Like, how am I supposed to identify this guy? Like, it wasn't me who saw him trying to break into my car. And also, like, nothing's missing. Everything's fine. Like... Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so the guy just brushed it off, and he just seemed to be going, like, a lot faster. And so Carol's just getting annoyed. She's like, I'm not in the mood for this game. What is this? And so eventually he said he was Officer Roseland with Murray Police Department. So he did try a door that was locked, um, saying it was the police station. But Carol didn't know this, but it was actually just a back entrance to a laundromat and not a police station at all. So... The man then said they would have to go down to headquarters to file a complaint, and he would drive her. Um, And so she expected to see a squad car, but instead she saw a VW bug. And she's like, well, I know sometimes there's undercover cars, but that's kind of weird. Like, this is getting a little off. And if anyone ever approaches you, I mean, any police officer, you should ask to see their identification. But especially an undercover police officer, like, 
nope, I'm going to need something to prove this. Thank you. Yeah. And so she does. And she's like, I demand to see your ID. So he's just acting so annoyed and he pulls out his wallet, flashes it quickly. And all she saw was like kind of the flash of a small gold badge, but she couldn't see the name of the department. She couldn't see a number. She couldn't see anything. And so he opened the door and she debated refusing, but again, he was getting impatient and she had this, you know, idea that, you know, he's a police officer. I should listen to him. Um, and also keep in mind, like, she's only 18 years old. Like, yeah. especially if you've been trained your whole life that police are good people, like you should trust the police, like that you should trust people in general. You know, she's so young. Like, it, I feel like when you see her speak, like at the trial and everything, like she just seems so much older, but like, she's only 18 years old. So I feel like that's really important to keep in mind too, if you're like, why would you have done this? That's probably why. <laughs> yeah. So she gets in the car and she immediately smells alcohol on his breath. And she's like, okay, I know for a fact a police officer cannot drink on the job. Like, I know that. So he tells her to fasten her seatbelt and she says no. And so she's like, I'm ready to fight. Um, and, but the car pulls out of the lot and just starts like accelerating. And then she knows that they're going in the opposite direction of the police department. She said that she was trying to kind of get attention of, like, passing cars, but they were all just going too fast. Like, she was hoping, like, if I can just, like, look in someone else's window, they can see, like, I need help. Mm-hmm. So, the car then stopped very suddenly at McMillan Grade School. So, she looked at the man and noticed he was no longer smiling, his jaw was set, and he seemed very removed from her. Like, this is a completely different man than was the guy who was, you know, trying to be like, oh, someone broke into your car, all that. Which... People that have survived experiences with Ted Bundy all kind of report the same thing. That, like, he has this very, like, laid back, just, like, chill personality. And then, like, all of a sudden it's just, like, the flip of a switch. Like, he just has, like, these dead eyes and he's just, like, a completely different person. Like, I know Liz and Molly both mentioned that as well. Like, Liz mentions times where they were, like, rafting in the river and he would, like, jokingly, like, dunk her under. Like, people sometimes do. But then, like, she would come up and, like, all of a sudden his face was, like, different. Like, his eyes yeah. were just cold and dead and she's like oh we're not playing anymore this isn't a game like something very common that's reported in um these interactions with with bundy yeah um so at this point um she's like you know like what are you doing and then she reaches for the door handle on her side to jump out but the man was a little too quick and he handcuffed her right wrist so at this point she starts fighting and screaming and so he's struggling to get the cuffs on her other wrist um he missed and he did manage to only get the second cuff on the same wrist and so she continued to fight she was scratching him she was screaming at the top of his lung uh, her lungs um and then suddenly he pulled out a small black gun and held it to her head and said if you don't stop screaming i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna blow your brains out so she fell backward out of the car and saw the pistol drop to the floor of the car. So now he has some kind of crowbar in his hand and throws her up against the car. So she did manage to kick him in the genitals and break feet free and she just began to run and just kept running. So Wilbur and Mary Walsh were driving down the road when they see a figure in their headlights. So Wilbur slams on his brakes and they unlock the door and a girl gets in and she's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So Mary's trying to comfort her and be like, you're safe. No one's going to hurt you. Like nothing's going to happen. Everything's okay. Um, and Carol just kept saying he was going to kill me. He said he was going to kill me if I didn't stop screaming. So the Walshes are immediately like, okay, we're going to take Carol to the police department. 
Um, once they got there, she was unable to walk, so Wilbur did carry her in. And Carol told them, one of your police officers, Officer Roseland, attacked me. Um, but of course, no surprise, there is no Officer Roseland, and no one used an old Volkswagen on duty. Um, detectives couldn't really get any prints off the handcuffs. There's only a few smudges that they couldn't really piece together. And there was no trace at the scene besides just one of Carol's shoes that she'd lost while she was running away. So Carol looked through books of mugshots, but she didn't recognize anyone. Um, she'd never seen this guy before, and three days later, she did find two small drops of blood on her jacket collar. So she took it in, and they determined it was not her blood, and that it was type O, but they couldn't di differentiate, so they couldn't tell if it was o, po o positive or O negative. And the similarities between Carol's kidnapping and Melissa's murders, like, could not be ignored. There were so many, except for the fact that just Carol got away. Um, and the parking lot of the pizza parlor Melissa disappeared at was only a mile away from the fashion, pl fashion place mall. So on November 8th, 17 miles from Murray in Bountiful, Utah, 17-year-old Debbie Kent was headed with her parents for the premiere performance of The Redhead. So her brother was like, I don't want to see this play at all, and just take me to this roller rink, and then you can pick me up at 10. And they were like, perfect. So at intermission, Debbie did call her brother and we're like, we don't think the play is going to be over by 10. It's going to be probably a little bit later. And then she went back in for the second act. So after the play, Debbie's like, I'm going to go pick up my brother and I'll come back and pick up my parents. So a few other people at the play also mentioned seeing a well-dressed, handsome stranger kind of hanging around the school. Um, one of the teachers, a part of the play, like a man had come up to her and was like, hey, can you help me out? And she's like, no, I'm putting on a production. <laughs> yeah, what are you like, talking about? No, I can't come help you. <laughs> like, very, very strange. Like, she, I remember in the book they talk about how she's just, like, busy and she's, like, running around. She's, you know, clearly, like, in charge of display. And this guy's just like, oh, hey, can you come? I said, no, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, she's like, no, leave me alone. What are you doing back here? <laughs> so, um, several residents of an apartment complex across from the high school remember hearing two short piercing screams come from the west parking lot between 1030 and 11 that night. And they were like, this was not a playful scream. This was like a serious, my life is in danger scream. So much so, a lot of witnesses walked out to go look over at the dark lot, but they just mm -hmm. didn't see anything. So De Debbie's brother was waiting at the roller rink. Her parents were standing at the high school. Everyone's kind of like, what's going on? And then after everyone left, they noticed that their car was still in the parking lot but they didn't see Debbie. So it appeared that she never made it to the car at all. Um, they did notify the Bountiful Police Department and her mother's like, she wouldn't just leave us alone in this parking lot. You know, she wouldn't mm -hmm. do that. Um, and the next morning, the police searched around the school. So in the empty parking lot, two detectives did find a handcuff key. So they took this key at once to the Murray Police Department and it fit perfectly in the handcuffs used on Carol. So these keys are interchangeable. So the handcuffs that were used on Carol were like an off-brand. They weren't the brand police use. Mm -hmm. So on some of these off-brands, the keys can like work, but it's very clear like this is suspicious. Like mm -hmm. this is not a coincidence. Yeah. Um, and police do get a phone call from someone at the school saying they saw an old Volkswagen, a light-colored bug, racing from the parking lot just after 1030. And that 
is where we're going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, we have a lot of story left to tell. <laughs> Do not fear. There's more left. coming. Um, we'll answer all your questions. We're going to depress you some more because Bundy's an asshole. So. Yes. Bundy is the worst and we're trying our best to tell these victim stories and unfortunately it gets even worse in part two with it just rapidly there being so many of them and so many that we don't find out for many more years and so many names that we still don't know because Bundy for sure killed people that we are not even aware of today. Um, so that's like we said where we're going to leave it for part one. Um, if you guys just want to hear part two immediately, you can head on over to patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes um, where you can join our little Patreon family and you can listen to part two um, right now and you'll also have a bonus episode next week. So if we ever do a part two where you get both parts at once, we always make sure our Patreon people get an extra bonus episode so you're not going a whole week without one. Yeah, and um, we are, we did try to there is so much information about Bundy. We tried to point out yes. the most important things. Be sure to talk about all the victims and, you know, details about them. If we left something out um, after you listen to part two and you think, like, you should not have left this out at all or anything, please let us know. Like, maybe we'll bring it up on, like, the next episode yes. or, like, talk about it. Um, it is just really hard when there is so much information and you kind of have to try and, like, pick and choose what's the most important to tell. Yes, and we really, really didn't want to make this a three-parter just because that's just too much, and it's too much of Ted, and we're ready to get him over with. So, yes. <laughs> again, and we cut out the parts that we feel like were not important to the victim stories, like all the parts with just, like, Ted rambling, like, nobody needs to hear what you have to say. Like, you don't matter. So that's yeah, where we just exactly. chose to cut pieces. <laughs> yeah. Whew. All right, so, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? Okay, so my perk of the week is yesterday I got to go and pick up the keys to my new apartment. And we don't get to move in for a little bit just because we have two busy weekends, um, mm -hmm. things, life happening basically. Um, but we get the apartment so we can move over like some of the smaller things. And I'm just so excited. It's really close to downtown and like restaurants and breweries and bars and you know, all that. I'm just so excited to not be where I am anymore and be closer to like things. So yes. I'm very excited and hopefully you won't hear these stinking cars <laughs> at my new place, but I'm very excited. And so that is my perk of the week. Uh, Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? Yes, that is such a cool perk of the week. I'm super excited for your new place as well. Um, my perk of the week is that I let my husband get this new fancy blender and <laughs> He's been talking about this blender for a while, you know, really trying to sell me on this blender. So I finally was like, okay, you can get your blender. And I'm not going to lie, the blender's pretty great. Um, so, like, <laughs> like, obviously we had a very crappy blender. It's not obviously, but we had a very crappy blender before. And this blender, like, everything is just, like, perfectly smooth. Like, there's no, like, any chunks left at all. Um, Andrew <laughs> also made homemade peanut butter and homemade hummus in it, um, both of which were fantastic. So, yeah, I just have had lots of yummy things to eat this week because Andrew's blending everything we own about three times a day. Like, Courtney and yeah. I were FaceTiming at 11 o'clock last night doing this research, and all of a sudden the blender starts going, what are you blending at 11 o'clock on a Friday night? <laughs> but, yeah, that is my perk of the week. Yeah, that's a fun one. I can't wait to come visit, and you guys can make me cool things. 
So. Yes, um, Andrew is for sure going to make you some homemade sunflower butter, he says. so. I'm excited. I bet that'll be <laughs> really good. Yeah. Okay, so we are still running our contest. Um, if we get to 100 followers on Instagram, again, we're still so close, Or and 50 reviews on Apple Podcasts, um, we're going to choose one winner from each, and you'll get a pin, a sticker, and a $10 gift card to the coffee shop of your choice. Don't forget on Instagram, if you do reference people, we'll put your name in twice. Yep. Um, but yeah, and so you can go follow us on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. Um, we're on Facebook, Caffeinated Crimes Podcast. We're on Twitter, and that's Caff Crimes Pod. That's C-A-F-F Crimes Pod. Um, you can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail.com. And like we said before, if you need the rest of the Bundy story right this very second, go to patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes. You can have it. You can have a bonus. You can have all the other episodes we've already released. And yeah, did I leave anything out? I think I said that really fast. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> that is all. You said all the things, Courtney. All the things. <laughs> so, you know what? Go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime.